This is not the media. This is hell. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. This is hell today on the show. We are continuing our ongoing series of interviews we're doing every Thursday with correspondents, contributors, past guests, and maybe some people who have never even been on our show before to find out what the global coronavirus pandemic is like where they are, what's happening in their community and within their own lives during this age of the virus. We started this segment a couple of months ago when we spoke with our man in San Juan, Dave Buchan. Dave told us how Puerto Rico is dealing with the pandemic after being hit by an earthquake and still recovering from hurricanes that devastated the island back in 2018. Then we talked to our correspondent in Budapest, Todd Williams, who described a Hungary still under the authoritarian rule of Prime Minister Viktor Orban and how Orban's power has expanded during the virus. But don't forget, Orban's unchallenged power was growing by leaps and bounds long before the virus. The next week, we talked to the award-winning video game designer of the game, Thumper, Mark Flurry, who has been giving us some morning calm from Seoul, South Korea, since at least 2015. Mark told us why South Korea responded far better than the United States and to the virus and why he is so concerned for the people back here in the U.S. because he doesn't have much faith in the self-discipline of our society back here in the States to actually adhere to safety protocols that could save our very lives. And it turns out Mark was correct in having those concerns, as so many here in the States not only refuse to act safely, but also believe you keeping yourself and others safe by, say, wearing a face mask is somehow disrespectful. USA, USA. Next, we went down to Brazil to hear from our correspondent in Sao Paulo. Editor and correspondent Brian Muir. Brian told us how the government of Jair Bolsonaro has reacted to the crisis, and if you guessed that a far-right wing leader would deny the actual existence of the virus, then deny how deadly the virus is, you guessed correctly. After heading down to Brazil, we went to Taiwan and we spoke with writer and founder of the website New Bloom, Brian Hugh, who explained exactly how the virus could lead to China and the U.S. starting World War III. And with the rhetoric ratcheting up on a daily basis from President Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who insists China made COVID-19 in a lab, despite their own intelligence agency saying that's not true, despite their own medical experts saying that's not true, who knows? Maybe Trump will get his war to distract the people from his complete bungling of the virus. Last week, we talked to a longtime contributor here on This Is Hell, Laura Carlson, director of the Americas program at the Center for International Policy in Mexico City. Laura described how Mexico had been the epicenter of an epidemic before, back in 2009 with the swine flu, which somewhat prepared the country and its people for an outbreak. But when you are a nation with over 40% of its people living in poverty, facing a virus has its own unique challenges, has sheltering in place is not an option for a large portion of the population. Laura also explained how this was happening in the midst of Mexico's healthcare nationalization. And while many conservatives were putting pressure on newly elected President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador and his many promised reforms. So no, our reports are not what you are getting elsewhere and this week. The plan was to go to Caracas and talk to Venezuela analysis writer as well as contributor to Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, Lucas Kerner, to find out how the virus was affecting Venezuelans. Problem is, Lucas is not in Venezuela, where he usually reports to us from, where he lives, because he's been stuck in Santiago, Chile, as that's where he was when the outbreak happened. 
thus keeping him stuck in Chile as Venezuela has closed its borders. So we figured we'd get a report on what's happening in Chile instead under the virus. Then a group of and then a group of mercenaries including those from the U.S., apparently guided by a Miami-based paramilitary firm, tried to overthrow the Venezuelan government and President Nicolas Maduro last weekend, and the mercenaries have been caught, including the apparent leader who was who has done security for President Trump at campaign rallies. So we'll be talking to Lucas Kerner live from Chile about the virus there and the invasive species of mercenaries that are infecting the shores of Venezuela. Lucas is a political analyst and editor at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. You can follow Lucas on Twitter at LM underscore Kerner, K-O-E-R-N-E-R. This will be Lucas's sixth appearance on This Is Hell, and you can hear all of our past conversations with Lucas at our website, ThisIsHell.com. And, of course, we'll wrap up the week as we do most weeks with the moment of truth. From contributor Jeff Dorchin. This week, Jeff dreams of coleslaw. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host, podcast host, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, any plans for the weekend? Anything new by you? Yeah. Uh, what's it called when you don't want to kill yourself, but you want to die? Oh, uh, uh, normalcy? Let me, uh, let, me look, let me look that up. <laughs> I uh, want to kill myself, but I don't want to die. See, that's my problem. That's why I've never really gone through so we gotta, it. We've got to come somewhere in the middle of this one. <laughs> exactly. Uh, this week's question from is, what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins 10 This Is Hell advertising stickers, so you too can subvert outdoor ads with the words, This Is Hell. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can tweet it to us at thisishellradio, or you can email it to either of us at chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from mail? What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Aaron B. says, my Monday morning Zoom meeting that still has my poop-related virtual background <laughs> up from my weekend Zoom hangouts with my poop-obsessed friends. <laughs> Damn, Aaron. <laughs> I know, really? uh, Dan T says, my overwhelming sense of ennui that burgeons forth into full scale, full scale existential dread. Mm, you get points for saying ennui. Pete V says, Pandora's box. <laughs> Steve C says, my last can of worms. Aaron D says, another Marvel superhero movie. What are you reopening too soon? Greg M says, James Joyce's Ulysses. All my excuses for not finally finishing it have been eliminated. They're dead. <laughs> and I can say too soon that I haven't completely convinced myself of any redeeming value in finishing it. Garrett S. says, the one condom left in my drawer because I just can't take the loneliness anymore. (laughs) And then finally, what are you reopening too soon? Gorilla G. says, my eyes each morning. Alex will have more more of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. Again, email us your answers to chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. Post them on our Facebook page or direct message us your response via Twitter at thisishellradio. This is hell, the best radio show, podcast, live stream, whatever the hell this is, your best friend has never heard of. I don't know about you, but every so often somebody says something on our show that sticks in my head and I can't get it out. I can't stop thinking about it because my thinking hasn't stopped on what a guest has said that provoked such a deep consideration of what was said. And that happened yesterday when speaking with sociologist Aaron Hatton author of Coerced, Work Under Threat of Punishment, and I could not stop thinking about something Aaron said all day, and it's going to drive me nuts all weekend, I'm certain of it. 
While we're talking about being coerced into work like a prisoner is who works for pennies every hour, but if they don't work, they will be punished, or a PhD student who must do their boss's research for their boss and not get credit, and if they don't, they don't get their PhD. We got into a conversation during that talk about how we value work in the United States, how it defines us. We're defined by our, by our employment, which we derisively call a job. Yet we allow that job to define who we are. So I asked Aaron if the people we see protesting at state capitals are protesting because they're not making any money, that they want unemployment insurance, that they want universal basic income, or are they protesting not because of a lack of money, financial resources, from having gainful employment as they were deemed unessential workers, but because without that work, they are nothing more than unproductive citizens, non-workers, without that identity, without any meaning, being less than an American. During the Blitz, Winston Churchill wanted all Britons to stay calm and carry on, go about your business, being tax-paying consumers to the empire. Go on, go, see, go to the movies, go out to a show, enjoy the pub. Following 9-11, President George W. Bush told everyone to go on with our daily lives and go to the shopping mall and consume, 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 buy, 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 and help out the economy, which had taken a hit from 9-11. We're told every day that we want to get back to normalcy, apparently. That's what the media tells us. But what kind of normal do we have when we define ourselves by our employment, which gives us the resources to distract ourselves from our work reality by consuming? Consuming constant consumption, which depends upon constant growth and constant production on into infinitum, or when the planet, its resources, and us become far too finite. We define ourselves by our work, and without that work, we are nothing. To simulate happiness, we consume to our heart's content. But a heart always filled with the lust for the next best thing is never content and can never satisfy the desires of consumerism. What happens to our self-identity, to our lives, when they are lived within the parameters of work and consumption, when our limited time on Earth is completely summed up in what we did on the clock and our stuff we left behind? What happens when the only way to contribute to society is through having a job, buying stuff, and nothing else is really expected of us and we don't expect anything else of ourselves? Because I don't know, but you would hope, at least I think you would, that when someone asks you, so what do you do, we wouldn't automatically respond with how we make money. You would hope that we wouldn't identify ourselves by the stuff we buy, the brands we wear, the, the phone we use, or the car we drive, or the music we listen to, or any brand. That we would be more than our job and our stuff, or is that enough for us? Can a life lived as nothing more than worker and consumer, which sounds far too much like types of ants serving a queen for reproduction purposes only, can that life be fulfilling? And I can't stop thinking about this because what other life would there be? Is there an alternative to a life lived as worker and consumer and nothing more? Sure, you can say you were a good mother or good father, but even in those roles, you are resourcing them through work and consumption and still defining yourself through your job and your stuff and even defining your kids. I can't stop thinking about us 
being nothing but workers and consumers, and then we die because... I'm not done thinking about it yet, and considering if that is all we are, all we hope to be, and all we can be in this life, then I guess I've been right all along. This is hell. Coming up on This Is Hell, we continue our series of reports from our correspondents around the world, contributors, and past guests. This time, we'll hear what's happening in Chile and in Venezuela, what with last weekend's attempted coup and all. During the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin dreams of coleslaw and more of your answers to this week's question from hell as well as announcing this week's winner we'll also tell you what's happening on tomorrow's patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash this is hell if you want to support completely listener supported this is hell go to this is hell.com and click on support where you can become a patreon subscriber check out our merchandise or just make a donation I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Live from the United States, where a property has more rights than people. This is hell. We were looking forward to learning what's happening in Venezuela during the virus. Then the person we wanted to talk to got stuck in Chile. Then the U.S. tried to overthrow the Venezuelan government. So we've got lots to talk about. Returning to This is Hell. Lucas Kerner is a analyst, political analyst, and journalist at VenezuelaAnalysis.com, and this is Lucas's sixth appearance here on This Is Hell. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Lucas. Pleasure to be here, Chuck. It's always great to hear your voice, sir. First question we've been asking everybody during these Thursday reports that we've been talking to is, how are you feeling, sir? I'm feeling fine. Very fine. Just the the if you hear a cat crying, you'll know that just the cats are are, are suffering in this quarantine too. <laughs> so you have not had any kind of symptoms. You have you ever been tested uh, when it comes to coronavirus? No, I've been completely healthy. I have nothing to complain about. I'm in a very uh, lucky situation in terms of the broader scope of things. Okay, so why the hell are you in Chile? Why aren't you in Venezuela? Well, basically, I guess the long story short, short my my partner, she is a Chilean photojournalist, and she was actually shot in the eye by Chilean police on the 31st of December Holy while recording kind of the uh, New Year celebrations there. So I came in uh, in the third week of January to kind of accompany her in her process here, and then I could not return because of the pandemic in at the beginning of April. So I've just – I'm – I'm here. <laughs> First of all, how's your partner doing? Uh, she, I mean, she's doing better psychologically, but unfortunately, it's nerve damage. So it's around like 90. She's lost 90% of the vision in that eye. I mean, she has not lost the eye itself. So that's positive because it doesn't look like she as anything has happened physically from the outside. But it's uh, it's definitely not looking up in terms of because her treatment has been interrupted by the, the pandemic and the Chilean state is kind of refusing to take on any responsibility for the over 450 some uh, victims of ocular trauma as a result of the uh, bloody repression that the Chilean state has executed um, really since uh, October of last year. So she's a photographer. I assume that she was taking photographs at that point in time. Do you have any sense, any any understanding of whether this shooting was accidental or intentional? Well, there's been a pattern of the Chilean military, militarized police, known as the Carabineros, uh, shooting at uh, 
people with cameras and she had a camera they had cameras and they didn't have their uh, protective gear you know usually they all wear eye protectors and all kinds of you know because the, you know this is not this is not the first time there are over 400 and something cases of this this is a pattern by the Chile, by the Chilean uh, state to you know maim the protesters in, 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 in an effort I think as we covered last year to kind of demobilize people so we this is in the case of Gustavo Gatica who likewise was who was blinded in both eyes lost both of his eyes he had a camera on so there's, this is a pattern so it, it, there was no actual mobilizations there was no protest at the time that it happened around 11 p.m on New Year's Eve so it you know clearly was a politically motivated action um, it remains unclear whether they identified her and went after her personally but it's pretty certain that they saw that she had a camera and they opted to shoot her and they continued to shoot her after the first aid people arrived and they shot at the first aid people so i mean this is a yeah in these kinds of these munitions these uh these uh they're supposed to be rubber bullets but in fact they're not they're just any kind of kind of steel or metal uh, small marble rounds that are just, you know, they just uh, hurt, shoot at with, uh, with shotguns at the protesters with, and, you know, at journalists with impunity. So, I mean, it's and it's actually banned for them to use this, but they do it anyway. So what has been the impact of the virus on the protest movement in Chile? Well, unfortunately, like in many countries, the pandemic has really forced the movement to kind of go into hibernation for the time being, just because you can't convene mass street demonstrations due to the social distancing rules and you know, obviously people are conscious and they don't want to violate those rules and infect more people the last thing you need is you know the people who are resisting to be infected and you know create greater strain on on you know because these, these are the poor these are the people you know the country has very few ventilators it's a you know this is a country that's completely unprepared for the crisis because you know as we've as we've talked about neoliberalism you know the, the virus of neoliberalism has you know corroded the social body to a point in which you know there just are not you know even the most basic resources for the majority of the population to to be able to get through this so People have not. You did see some May first action, but it was definitely, you know, by anyone who's been in Chile, it's you know, usually you see hundreds of thousands of people on the streets. You know, you did not see that, unfortunately. So there, there has been you know, a demobilization, but the repression of the Chilean state has not ceased. In fact, you had a, a 15-year-old in uh, the the municipality where I live, La Pintana. Uh, who was uh, extrajudicially killed by the uh, Chilean police. Who He was accused of, of robbery, and he was arrested, and he was shot. So there, there's a continued uh, repression by the Chilean state. So what uh, what are the current safety protocols that are, you're experiencing in Chile? Uh, are you sheltering in place? Is there a quarantine? Are you allowed to go outside? Because I've heard of these... Uh, apparently they have these kind of virus-free certificates, immunity passports in Chile, where you're allowed to get this paperwork so you can travel more freely than others can. So what what's the current state of safety protocols in Chile for you? Yes, the Chilean state has uh, taken a very interesting interpretation of, uh, you know, the, the virus that you know, somehow only they know that the virus will only last a certain amount of time and will grant you immunity, even though there's no scientific evidence to support that. And they're granting people these immunity passes that you know are extremely uh, dubious. 
And uh, I mean, the, the 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 health minister is a clown. He's he said at one point that you know we don't know this virus. We don't know it, it could somehow you know overnight become a good person. You know somehow it could stop being lethal. <laughs> I mean, this it's it's you know this person is utterly incompetent. I mean, the, the strategy is you know similar to the strategy of the United States, which is basically they never went into a full lockdown, and now that they're they're actually you know been taking uh, different municipalities out of lockdown because they say that the epidemiological data uh, data has suggested that it's the situation has improved, which is ridiculous because the whole point it's a whole it's it's a temporal based thing that, you know, if you take you know, the only reason things have improved is because you put people in the lockdown and you reduced circulation. And if you increase circulation again, you're going to have more infections and it's going to get worse. I mean, it's utterly absurd. I mean, obviously, at, you know, as you were saying in the monologue, the only interest is to safeguard, you know, capital. And you know, that's the bottom line. So you are in a country that's a capitalist democracy, Chile. You live in a country that is a socialist country, Venezuela. Where would you feel safer right now? Where would you feel in better hands when it comes to uh, having the coronavirus? Well, I would make a qualification that Venezuela is not a socialist country. I mean, seventy percent of the economy is privately owned, or what's left of the economy after you know the impact of U.S. devastating U.S. economic sanctions. I'm just trying to make so. It I mean, the, certain, I'm, I'm just trying to make yeah, it I, yeah, the, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, in terms of, I mean, Venezuela, the government, you know, has, you know, it ha- even among its critics has, you know, on the ground there, you know, not not the opposition, but people who among the population who are leaning towards the opposition have, you know, recognized that Maduro did act quite decisively in immediately closing, you know, even before any cases emerged, uh, closing down the, uh, the, the flights, the borders, and um, implementing a national quarantine, and then subsequently implementing certain kinds of economic measures, which will have, you know, are much more limited in actual scope because he, the government doesn't have the real capacity, you know, to, to you know, guarantee social welfare measures largely because of the sanctions. It doesn't have funds. But certainly, yes, the government did act decisively. And you see very few cases, actually, in Venezuela. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people there. And, you know, there's there's a consensus that the, the numbers that are there's some only 300 something cases that seems to reflect the reality, very few deaths. So I think that the government has responded well, and I, I think that that should be applauded. The problem is that the, the, this, the, the, there's not the conditions to, to maintain a lockdown, given, you know, as I mentioned, the sanctions, that simply the economy is already being, is being you know, more, more devastated than any other country you know, in a lockdown, uh, due to the fact that, for example, uh, gasoline, there's a massive shortage of gasoline uh, Venezuela, given the U.S. sanctions on the on the Russian company Rosneft, the uh, oil giant, the energy giant, it was it pulled out of Venezuela and transferred its assets to another Russian company, and that that new Russian company, which is directly owned by the Kremlin, has un, been unable to fulfill the same kinds of triangulating functions for uh, basically coordinating the sale of Venezuelan oil and importing uh, helping Venezuela import gasoline. And this is, you know, means that Venezuela has has seen the the worst kinds of gasoline shortages, you know, since perhaps 2018, 2017. So it's very, the situation is is very serious. You know, likewise, the economic crisis is, you know, you had seen an economic recovery over in recent months. 
um, I mean, particularly in the capital, but in other parts as well. And you know, that is definitely things are, have gone back to some of the worst days of you know 2018 uh, with or you know late 2017 with that regard. So the, it's definitely a very difficult situation, and you know the government is in an impossible situation because they have to choose on the one hand between you know trying to control the pandemic and then trying to preserve some level of economic activity that people literally don't go hungry because people are going hungry because they can't go to work, and so it, it's it's a real you know I mean the, the, as uh, the uh, former uh, UN rapporteur Alfred Desais pointed out, I mean, sanctioning a country. You know, amid a pandemic, or in any case, but particularly amid a pandemic, is, is is genocidal, and that's what the United States is doing. And the same thing with Iran. In fact, the interesting thing you're seeing now is Iran and Venezuela are, are collaborating. Uh, Iran is helping Venezuela try to kickstart its refineries, which have been offline for uh, at least since uh, last year's uh, massive blackouts. And you know, Venezuela is paying them in gold, and so you're seeing this kind of south-south. Uh, coordination, which, you know, Pompeo is not trying to stop, you know, because this is unacceptable. But it's interesting to see these kinds of, uh, likewise, Venezuela is receiving aid from Cuba. There's, I mean, a lot, tons of Cuban doctors on the ground and other professionals, and also China sent a delegation. So there definitely is some more international response to try to help Venezuela amid this very, very difficult time. So let's go to your story you posted yesterday at VenezuelaAnalysis.com. Venezuela, two U.S. citizens captured in botched coup attempt. Two former Green Berets were arrested in a second failed assault on Venezuela shores on Monday. Oddly, Lucas, when I got home from the show yesterday, I'm being sarcastic here kind of, uh, a morning uh, and perused all the local and national news uh, outlets. Oddly, Lucas, I didn't see one word about this attempted coup, as you call it. I didn't see anything on the national news over the weekend, earlier this week. The last time you were on, we talked about your writing at Fairness and Accuracy and reporting at FAIR.org on the establishment news media's take on Venezuela. What is the U.S. viewing audience missing about their understanding of their government and its foreign policy when it simply is not being told on the major corporate news media TV outlets that mercenaries from the U.S. tried to overthrow Venezuela. Indeed, I think that, that what I found from the response was that, you know, certainly is that, in fact, it was more just that we're kind of trying to make this out to be a joke. I mean, the that this was some kind of, uh, you know, this is. This is a knockoff of the Bay of Pigs, and all of your, you know, typical liberal imperialist uh, pundits and outlets were 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 making hay of this. But I mean, this is an extremely serious affair. That I mean, certainly, yes, it it was a pathetic failure. Um, but you know, what 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 did uh, Goudreau? He's a former Jordan Goudreau is a former uh, U.S. Special Forces. Uh, uh, veteran from Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the chicken's coming home to roost who decides to, you know, set up this mercenary outfit. I mean, this is obviously this, this, this tendency towards the privatization of war and just how this, the institutionalized culture of utter criminal lawlessness on the part of the U.S. imperial state kind of inexorably drives towards these kinds of incidents. And, you know, what did George tell the Washington Post uh, yesterday? Quote, this isn't a wartime action. This is a policing action, he said. The world recognizes one guy, why though, as president, so they hired me to arrest the other people who has usurped 
power. The other person who asserts power, Nicolas Maduro. I mean, this is he is a following what the imperial consensus, what the you know Trump's coalition of the willing has said is the right thing to do. That according to the, this coalition of the willing, that is Trump and basically the U.S. and it's basically its uh, imperial lackey states in Europe and uh, its clients in. Uh, South America and Latin America is that you know uh, Guaido, this person who never won you know more than ninety thousand votes in his life, is the president of Venezuela, and uh, the, despite having no power whatsoever, and you know th this this operation is designed to taking out Maduro, who won six point two million votes in twenty eighteen. In fact, won uh, the same won thirty one percent of the total electorate, which is about is more than Trump won in twenty sixteen, and is more is more than Obama the same as Obama in two thousand eight, and more than twenty twelve. So I mean, this is utterly absurd. But it's exactly the the U.S. recognition of this of this puppet, you know, who has no you know the unpre unprecedented move to do this because this is the first time the United States has ever recognized a a leader of a government that has no control over the state since it recognized uh, de gaulle as president of france during world war ii despite him not being controlled despite the vici government still being in power so i mean this is an absolutely uh you know it's a move that is only designed to you know for, for a long-term siege and these kinds of uh, mercenary actions, which, you know, this one being, you know, a farce, but we can imagine, you know, much more. I mean, they sought to kidnap Maduro they, or even kill him in the process. I mean, this is this is an extremely serious affair, and we can we can anticipate more of these kinds of actions as long as the United States continues its its criminal effort to oust an elected government just because it doesn't agree its, its interests are against those of the Venezuelan people. So do you think this was an attempt at being an overthrow of the government, or do you think this was more just a case of bounty hunters who were trying to get the $15 million reward that the United States and the DEA had put on Nicolas Maduro's head for allegedly being involved in drug trafficking? Do you think this was driven by greed, by profits, or do you think this was driven by some sort of misguided patriotism? I think it was clearly driven by both. I mean, like I said, this guy was a veteran of the U.S. imperial wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So you have to be pretty uh, screwed up in the head, you know, after you know going through this. So clearly, there was you know a lot of you know, a pretty demented view of reality that was informing this entire operation. But you're exactly right that you know the U.S. placing this price on Maduro's head is inevitably going to spark these kinds of actions. That you know, moreover, the, you know the Washington Post also revealed that you know it was about money. That you know got what. Gaudriel was going to be promised like something like 14% of the money in a warehouse and something like the, the warehouse containing ill-begotten gains of Maduro's inner circle. I mean, it's obviously all completely speculative as is expected from, you know, a imperial outlet like the Washington Post. But I mean, that's the whole, the, the, the point is, this was clearly about a government that was not or a that was never elected or right? a, a basically u.s puppet was that was never elected is green lighting or 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 collaborating with mercenary elements in the united states to kidnap the 
elected president and then divide up and then repay him for that with money from the Venezuelan people. I mean, this is, you know, in, in what world would this be acceptable if this was happening in the United States in which you, know, you had a you know, mercenary operation that was being, you know, organized from Canada in which, you know, I don't, the Russians were going to, you know, were, were you know, we're going to recognize, I don't know, Nancy Pelosi as, uh, as president of the United States. And, you know, she was, you know, in, in cahoots with, you know, mercenary elements, Russian mercenaries that we're going to come in and kidnap Trump. In what world would that be acceptable? It wouldn't. But when it comes to Venezuela, the, the, the imperial hubris is unlimited. And this kind of thing is, is par for the course. Do you think that this could backfire on the United States and the people and the opposition within Venezuela? Because uh, have you heard about what the public response has been in Venezuela to this attempted coup? Because all I can, want, can think about is if this might lead to... Uh, rejuvenation of nationalism and a rallying around the president Maduro and the government in, in an us versus them kind of moment. So do you have you heard about what the response has been and could this backfire when it comes to trying to prop up the opposition in Venezuela? I'm, I'm not on the ground, so I can't. I have not <clears throat> been able to witness firsthand any kind of response in that way. But what I can say is these kinds of incidents always end up uh, consolidating, in fact, uh, firing up Maduro's base. Let's remember that Maduro's base, I mean, he won 6.2 million votes in on Mar May 20th of uh, 2018. And this that was amidst a terrible economic crisis. So you have 30, some 30% 30 population, you know, supports or is sympathetic in some way to either Maduro or just the, the Chavista project as a whole. Um, the currently. So, I mean, that's a pretty significant section of the population who would definitely be opposed, even despite whatever criticisms or just hatred they might have of the current government for policies, they will oppose this kind of mercenary action. So, I mean, it's clearly going to consolidate, you know, make it clear that you know, this is this is a real existential threat that the United States poses to Venezuela and that whatever the criticism of Maduro, that there are are many, you know, in terms of the kinds of liberalizing economic policies that they've been pursuing. And many people, especially on the left, blame the government kind of for um, privatizing state assets that had been nationalized by China, by uh, Chavez, etc. But nonetheless, people are very clear that, you know, the United States, that Venezuela cannot be returned, you know, under the U.S. boot as it was, you know, for some 30 years under the the, the fourth republic that preceded Chavez, when you you had its uh, assets were being carved up and handed over to U.S. companies, and you know it was just, you know, you had you know, massacres, you know, perpetrated by the army in 1989, etc. So I mean, certainly there's a sentiment that Venezuela cannot go back to that. Now I think that more specifically, what this is going to do is it's going to further uh, politically bury uh, Guaido's uh, political corpse in, in, in the sense that he you know, is caught in a possible situation because on the one hand, there's all those evidence that's come out saying that he was um, collaborating with Good, uh, Goudreau, it's you know he signed a contract that's been taken public. You know clearly he's been implicated in this, yet he is denying it. You know so it's, he's in an impossible situation because if he if he can he confirms it, you know he's basically part of this failure. But if he denies it, he continues to expose himself as effectively a clown who has no real will or capacity to oust Maduro and is only you know calling aimlessly. Uh, you know 
begging the armed forces to oust Maduro. And yet the, the, the reality is that Guaido to his right, you know, particularly represented by J.J. Rendon and all these other elements who's in Miami, who's his advisor, you know, these who this this. Ex, this uh, Miami-based or, or exile-based Venezuelan opposition, who you know, his only position, that their only option is to literally bomb Venezuela and oust Maduro. They, they've been only out calling for military intervention and pushing Guaido to realize that intervention. So, I mean, Guaido is in a, a you know a really impossible situation because you know obviously you know such it's not a very popular position in Venezuela to be calling for bombing your own country. Yet, you know, this is he's real he's totally beholden to these far right uh, opposition elements, which are largely you know very close to the U.S. establishment. You know, very close to uh, John Bolton and others, Marco Rubio, but you know who's in whose interests are totally at odds with, you know, the the, the vast majority of people in Venezuela. They don't care about this operation. They don't care about this. They just want their basic material needs to be taken care of, to be able to access the goods that they need to access at the price at prices that are affordable. And, you know, that is made impossible by U.S. sanctions. So it's really that, you know, this is just, the, it's a stalemate in that regard. Lucas, we're going to reestablish with you real quickly because uh, I want to talk to you for another 10, 12 minutes. So we're going to reestablish our phone connection with you so we can get a bit, little bit of a clearer call. Uh, you are listening to This Is Hell broadcast live every day, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time here in Chicago at thisishell.com. Our Friday broadcast is for Patreon subscribers only. You can subscribe to Patreon, to This Is Hell on Patreon, at patreon.com slash thisishell. So uh, real quick, uh, Lucas, you know, there's a lot of debate over, you're saying that the United States was involved. Uh, Mike Pompeo is saying that the United States was not involved. Trump is saying that the United States was not involved. As the AP posted yesterday, an AP investigation published prior to the failed raid places Jordan Goudreau at the center of a plot hatched with a rebellious former Venezuelan army general, Cliver Alcala, to secretly train dozens of Venezuelan military deserters in secret camps in Colombia to carry out a swift operation against Maduro. The men were being readied for combat at three rudimentary camps in Colombia with the help of Goudreau and his Florida-based company, Silver Corp USA. Multiple uh, Maduro opponents and aspiring freedom fighters told the AP, but the plot seemed doomed from the start because it lacked the support of the Trump administration was infiltrated by Maduro's vast Cuban-trained intelligence network, the AP found. Did this fail? Because did this coup fail because the U.S. didn't support the coup or was it completely supported by the U.S.? Well, I think it was very revealing that Pompeo in a press conference, he, he said with a very interesting uh, use of language that the, the U.S. was not, quote unquote, direct, had no, quote unquote, direct involvement. So I'm not sure what that's supposed to mean. But, I mean, it's evident that that they were aware of this, uh, that including you know the AP article on Saturday which you know was had something like six or seven denials from both AP two from AP and then from all the other people that interviewed that the US was involved like a really desperate 
uh, attempt to kind of exculpate Washington from any involvement in this. But it did interesting. It acknowledged that both the opposition and Colombia knew about it, but they said nothing about the United States knowing about it. So I think that, you know, if I were a betting man, I would definitely uh, bet that the United States, you know, clearly was aware of this. And, uh, you know, absolutely, it didn't give it its support, but it was absolutely aware of this. And they, they let it go through, which in itself is, you know, a criminal action that, you know, under international law, you know, is punishable, that you cannot allow, you know, knowingly uh, facilitate these kinds of mercenary actions against a foreign government, you know, involving your own citizens and uh, you, the, own, the opposition, the, the proxies who you are financing and, you know, actively supporting and recognize. So, I mean, I think that that's the key point that needs to be stressed. I think that the other detail that's important here is that there's the whole attempt by on the one hand, kind of the United States to uh, distance itself from uh, Cleaver Alcala, who was a former Venezuelan major general who uh, defe he defected and has been in Colombia for a number of years now before going into DEA custody in March. But the whole, the it was interesting that you know they, the opposition in the United States, were claiming that he, that Alcala was an agent of Maduro, that he was a double agent, he was still pursuing those objectives, and they were trying to kind of um, blame Alcala. At, for you know, hold him as the you know kind of sabotaging the operation, him being the infiltrator, or um, in a certain sense. But what what the AP in its most recent story they left out was that Bloomberg reported in March of 2019 last year that Alcala he was organizing a force of some uh, 200 heavily armed you know, mercenaries in Colombia to clear the way for the humanitarian aid convoy, quote unquote, that was that the United States was and the opposition were trying to force across the Venezuelan border on February 23rd, 2019. So he was involved with that. And he, it was that only did not go ahead because Colombia got wind of it the last minute, the Colombian government, and vetoed that part of it. But clearly, the United States and the Colombia were highly aware of Alcala's operations as of last year. So the idea that, you know, suddenly he just appeared and tried to organize this kind of coup attempt um, along with Goudreau and that he's a Maduro infiltrator is completely ridiculous. I, I, there's clearly, you know, a connection here. There, we, we don't, we don't have, we're not going to know probably for a, a while exactly what has gone on here, but there's clearly kind of a high, uh, high level uh, interplay between Colombia, between the opposition and, and the United States, you know, given these are all proxies, these are all clients of the United States, and none of these actors ultimately really uh, act without the green light of the United States, you know, there's going to be a U.S. hand somewhere. That's my, that's my bet. Jordan Goudreau is quoted in a phone call on Monday with the AP after being caught saying of a coup in Venezuela. So this is while he is under arrest. He says, you've got to introduce a catalyst. By no means am I saying that 60 guys, that's how many people actually were in these amphibious landings, uh, multiple amphibious landings in Venezuela, 60 guys can come in and topple a regime. I'm saying 60 guys can go in and inspire the military and police to flip and join in the liberation of their country, which deep down is what they want. Do the Venezuelan deep Venezuelan people deep down want their military and police to liberate them from Maduro? And where would somebody like Jordan Goudreau get that kind of impression that that is what the people want? Because it sounds like it's a guy who's 
brainwashed into a fiction who then tries to take action on that fiction. It is curious, but it's not surprising because he's just repeating what the United States and the opposition, why though, have been calling for for over a year now, which is for the military to depose the elected president of Venezuela. I mean, why though, just recently has been reiterating his, his desperate calls for the military to rise up. I mean, how many times have Pompeo, have Elliot Abrams, all of these war criminals been calling for a coup in Venezuela, just explicitly, Marco Rubio explicitly calling for this. I mean, you know, let's recall that Marco Rubio last year tweeted, you know, photos on of, of bloodied, Gaddafi when he was being sodomized and murdered by the U.S. the NATO-backed proxies at that time. I mean, th this is this has been nonstop. And you know, I, like I said, the the vast majority of Venezuelans don't really care that much about politics in, insofar as they want to be able to have their economic situation resolved, and they understand that that's not going to be resolved by a civil war, which will likely ensue from any kind of you know attempt to initiate military action in Venezuela or a prolonged you know a rock style a quagmire which is going to leave you know hundreds of thousands of people dead so i mean the bottom line is you know the majority of venezuelans i mean at least you know at least when you some the opposition posted that analysis when they were honest enough to ask these kinds of questions like they did in uh December of 2017 about the U.S. economic sanctions then was, you know, you saw 55% of the population opposing these economic sanctions, which never gets recorded. You know, you, so you see when regularly something like 70, 80% of the population opposes military intervention. So these are incredibly unpopular positions. And like, like you say, it, it responds to a kind of magical thinking that this opposition, which, you know, and, you know, it's U.S. Uh, you know, masters, which have no real roots in the country, that have refused to, to do the hard work of kind of building a hegemonic politics, which, you know, is what Henrique Capriles, the opposition candidate in 2012 and 2013, actually tried to do because he tried to co-opt the language of Chavez to say, oh, well, I, I, I want to maintain the social progress. He actually went to the barrios to try to campaign. And you actually saw yeah, his campaign manager, Henry Falcon, tried to do the same thing in uh, in 2018. But these figure, the, these people were utterly sabotaged. Henry Falcon's campaign had the opposition united behind him. He probably could have won the election, but the opposition instead preferred to boycott and actively sabotage him. And you call suggesting that he was a Maduro plant or a traitor, infiltrate infiltrator, etc. And you know, similarly, Capriles is now persona non grata that he is you know completely rejected by the opposition. So any kind of attempt to build to do kind of grassroots organizing on the part of the opposition to attend to people's immediate needs is simply is is simply taboo is is, is not permissible. And this is why the opposition. You know, is not you know not only is it incapable of coming to power in Venezuela, but it could not even govern if it were to come to power because it, it simply has no uh, connection to people's basic needs, to people's realities, and you know it would likely you know you'd see a situation. I think that at least in Venezuela, I think it is you know like it you see in Argentina with the Fernandez government there. I think that it, it is kind of uh, fortunate that you kind of have governments that, you know, as problematic as they might be in, num in numerous ways, I mean, they're not perfect, but they actually do have some connection. To, they're somehow, they're embedded within the society to some degree and are able to respond to people's needs and not just let people die massively, like you're seeing in the United States, like you're seeing in Chile, like what's going to happen in Chile. You know, I think, and I think that's the fundamental difference between, you know, these kind of quote, quote unquote progressive governments and the reactionary neoliberal ones, the people that Western 
liberals and uh, leftists in, in the global north seem or are, are unwilling or unable to understand that for them it's oh these are just counter-revolutionary they're not revolutionary enough but i mean it's just it's a matter of life or death for the mass of people in these countries there was a daily beast article and the headline was trump just inspired the dumbest damn coup in history how much do we underestimate, undervalue, or just erase this coup when we just label it as something that was dumb and stupid? What happens when we only view this and categorize this as yet another stupid, silly mistake like the Bay of Pigs? That's a great question. I think that that's exactly the crux of the issue. That once again, I mean, this is the kind of the, the, the liberal dovish position that only is able to oppose U.S. imperialism on purely procedural or tactical grounds. That you know, the Iraq or Vietnam, they were strategic blunders. You know, as as Obama famously said, Iraq was the greatest strategic blunder in U.S. Uh, recent foreign policy. You know, it wasn't a war. It wasn't a war of aggression. A, you know, illegal under international law. You know, filled with war crimes. It was a strategic blunder. You know, the same thing with Vietnam. The same thing with you know, the Bay of Pigs, you know, which, you know, is still celebrated, by the way, there's a monument in Miami to the Bay of Pigs. I mean, this, this is this this imperial, you know, culture of just of savagery, of lawless savagery, where, you know, any that it's fine to inflict any amount of death and destruction on the enemies, uh, you know, of the of the of the United States in the global south, you know, and if it doesn't work, it's a it's a it's a it's a blunder. If it works, great. It, it, it was they were necessary casualties. The, the, one of the amazing things, that, first of all, uh, I mentioned a Daily Beast article, and I want to apologize to everybody for even quoting anything that you ever find in the Daily Beast, because it's usually pure crap. But they did uh, post this. Based on extensive photographs, uh, photographic evidence compiled by the organization Bellingcat, Bellingcat, we know Jordan Goudreau himself, was an earpiece-wearing security guard near the President of the United States, Donald Trump, during an October 2018 rally in Charlotte, North Carolina. And it's likely Silver Corp, the company that Goudreau is from that launched this invasion, was tapped to safeguard Trump's assemblies in Houston and Pennsylvania that same year as well. So if anybody is questioning whether Donald Trump had any knowledge of this happening, well, just consider the fact that his security guard at campaign rallies was the guy who was behind this invasion. So you can just figure out from there. One last question for you, Lucas. We have been speaking with Lucas Kerner. Lucas is a journalist and political analyst at VenezuelaAnalysis.com, where you can find his article, Venezuela, two U.S. citizens captured in botched coup attempt. Two former Green Berets were arrested in a second failed assault on Venezuelan shores. Also check out his writing at Fairness and Accuracy Reporting. Fair.org. You can find all of our interviews with Lucas, all six, including this one, at our website, fair or this is hell.com. And you can follow Lucas on Twitter at LM underscore Kerner. One last question, as we always do. It's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has said that he will use every tool to release the captured Green Beret, the U.S. hero who has been captured in Venezuela. He will use every tool. A lot of people have been seeing how Trump has been deflecting from his response to uh, the coronavirus. 
by pointing towards China over and over again. We had Brian Hugh on the show from New Bloom, and he was even fearful of a military confrontation to distract both the Chinese people as well as the American people from their government's poor responses to COVID-19. So how much do you fear that the military distraction, the war that Trump wants to distract people from his mistakes that he has made with COVID-19, that that every tool that Mike Pompeo is going to be using are all military tools? Yeah, I think that it's interesting. I get I, I don't want to overstress the kind of Trump cowboy connection because I feel like that is used to distract from the kind of deeper uh, military, you know, actions that are going on here and you know the sanctions and other elements that again these are bipartisan i mean so what we saw on april 1st is trump announced the largest uh, military deployment or one of the largest military deployments in the caribbean since the, the 1989 u.s invasion of panama deploying u.s destroyers AWACS surveillance aircraft on ground special forces that in an attempt in a, to do anti-drug quote unquote interdiction in the Caribbean. You know, even though Venezuela targeting Venezuela, even though you know Venezuela is in the vast majority of cocaine originating from Colombia goes through the Pacific, not through even not, not even through the Western Caribbean, and hardly any through the Eastern Caribbean. So it's completely ridiculous. And you saw not a peep of opposition from the from the Democrats, obviously, you know, from the very little from the Western press and you know the corporate press, and when you did see it, it was largely on procedural grounds that the Pen- you know, voicing the Pentagon's concerns that you know this is wasteful or this is you know this should not be the focus right now. This is strategically unwise, and I think that the other the other point about you know this uh, the Democrats here that we should mention is that let's remember that Joe Biden recognizes Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. What does that mean? It means that he's implicitly endorsing, as as uh, Jordan uh, Gondrell, uh, his quote to the Washington Post, that he's endorsing these kinds of operations because as long as you endorse Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela, then this is a policing operation. This is legitimate. So any kind of opposition from the you know the dovish liberal imperialists is completely is completely uh, cynical. It's because they absolutely support the sanctions and they absolutely support these kinds of uh, military adventures. And you know, I think there is. I, I don't think that the the danger of a U.S. military intervention in this moment is is extremely high because I think that they they're aware of how costly it would be for the United States. It would absolutely be a debacle. But let's remember that none of almost none of the corporate journalists reported uh, last week. Trump signed an executive order that allows him to mobilize uh, up to two hundred. Uh, members of the strategic reserve at any given time, and you know this was clarified to mean of the army air patrol. So and the Trump is now able to mobilize. It may seem like a small number, but we don't know if that's going to be respected or what. But the point is, Trump is you know there is a larger military mobilization at work, and that is being overshadowed by this kind of mercenary operation. And of course, you know the movement of U.S. destroyers you know, close to Venezuelan shores is absolutely a provocation that you know should be condemned by any you know self-proclaimed democrat or liberal in in any part of the world and yet their their silence is absolutely damning 
Lucas, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. The best to your partner. I hope that her vision can somehow come back. Uh, and I hope the best for you and that you can return to Venezuela as soon as possible. Really appreciate every report that you've given us on this show. I cannot thank you enough, sir. Thank you so much, Chuck, for having me. Hang in there. All right, thanks. Keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell, and if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. This week's question from hell is, what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? The person with our favorite answer wins 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers. You can leave your response to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page or send it to us via Twitter or email it to us. Alex, do you have more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell. What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Michael F. posted a gif of Madonna, which I didn't understand. No, and then I didn't get underneath that. he wrote, my heart. The Madonna song open your heart to me? I think that's what it's called. I don't know. Jessica P. says, the seventh seal. Braden S. says, my wallet. Always. <laughs> Nick A. says, you always point the question at me. What are you reopening too soon, Alex? <laughs> Crying emoji. Dick H. says, get ready for this one. Unrestrained capitalism inevitably results in death and destruction to everyone and everything. Capitalism's cancerous growth has moved the political spectrum so far to the right that progressives are seen as unelectable by the Democratic Party. Democrats give lip service to their former values but are firmly aligned with the corporate agenda. The Republican Party is even more insane, a totally narcissistic death cult solely devoted to enriching themselves in the 1%. Mass non-cooperation is the only route to a more humane society. Even if progressives like Sanders got elected, he'd be stymied at every turn by the corporate shills in Congress and the judiciary. One person, however, while intention cannot alter our current insane trajectory... All real substantive change requires all of us to come together and re- actively resist this ever-escalating corporate tyranny. I'm sorry, were you saying something else? What are you... <laughs> what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon is the question. Nick A says, you always... Oh, nah, John H says, the neoliberalism dog-eat-dog world. Justin M says, this bottle, my sense of humor about all this must be in here somewhere. <laughs> I like that. Colin S says, my mouth. Andrew S says, my third eye, I know too much. <laughs> Nam G says, my thrussy... Ugh. Like Wikipedia? Uh, dude, do not look it up. <laughs> I know what it is, and it's not thrussy, it's thrussy, if that helps. Oh, like your throat, but it's... Uh... Mm-hmm. Austin RM says, my sinuses, <laughs> and Ampula V says, I never closed. Hashtag medical staff. we got a couple more I'll do after Jeffy. What was Andrew's again? I was writing it down, and then you said thrussy. It wasn't thrussy. Uh, my third eye. I knew too much. My third eye. I like that one. On Patreon tomorrow, Alex will have more of your answers and the rest of the answers uh, to the question from Helen in just a few minutes after Jeff. On Patreon tomorrow, we are playing our June 11th, 2005 interview with uh, Carissa Lenfert of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, who was on a little less than 15 years ago to discuss factory farm pollution in Iowa, where we are seeing so many factory farm workers coming down with coronavirus. Carissa and her group had sued the EPA for allegedly making a backroom deal to weaken controls on factory farm pollution. 
It's not only a conversation about pollution, but the power of big agriculture and its influence on government. The Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement exposed the state's failure to protect water quality. They sued the EPA to bring the Iowa Department of Natural Resources Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations Program into compliance with the Clean Water Act. By 2014, nine years after the conversation we'll be playing in a few minutes, the uh, uh, next or tomorrow, I should say, the Iowa DNR did not issue any Clean Water Act permits to agricultural polluters, showing that the Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement had won their fight with the EPA. However, the DNR continue to not find polluters. So this is an ongoing problem. And you can hear that interview on Patreon tomorrow tomorrow by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. And we're going to go back to the lake, go back up north to find out what is happening with the coronavirus outbreak in small town America. There are signs of hope and, as always, signs of dopes in rural America and any part of America, for that matter. But you can only hear that if you subscribe to completely listener-supported This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Coming up during the moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin dreams of coleslaw. We'll also read the rest of your answers to this week's Quest from Hell. Announce our favorite and the winner of this week's prize, and we'll find out what's happening on next week's shows. Keep in mind, a lot of the questions I asked this week were written while I was high. This is hell. I know you have. Have a on the line. Old King Coleslaw. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. My mind is a spinner of dreams, and I dream of coleslaw. That's one word, apparently, coleslaw. And why is it one word? Because cole, C-O-L-E, is not a word. It's certainly not an adjective modifying the word slaw, although there is a word slaw, but there's also the compound word coleslaw. My source for this information is the spell check function in the Microsoft Word word processing application. If there's a red line under a word, it doesn't exist. Or else it's spelled wrong, but I have not spelled coal wrong if I'm positing a word spelled C-O-L-E. And I am, and I am spelling it correctly. Spell check is along with me for part of the ride. It's with me as long as I use coal as a prefix to be combined with the word slaw, which is indeed a lone word in its own right. Thanks, Spellcheck. You also are a word in your own right. Let us review. There's slaw and there's coleslaw. And they might be the same thing. Typographically related is the word crayfish. There are fish and there are crayfish. And until recently, there weren't any fish modified by the adjective cray. Because until recently, there was no adjective cray. There's the compound word crayfish, which is a kind of arthropod resembling a miniature lobster and living most or all of its life in water. But in addition to crayfish, there are now also crayfish, meaning crazy fish. That fish is totally cray. Or more commonly, that fish is cray-cray. You can have a crazy crayfish, which can be referred to with the Baroque sobriquet cray-cray-crayfish. Crawfish are similar to crayfish. In an orthographic sense, and in a biological taxonomic sense, there are crayfish and crawfish, as well as crayfish, crazy fish, and crawfish, fish in or meant for your craw. 
To muddy the waters, the difference between a crayfish and a crawfish seems to be a technical one. They appear to be identical, except the crawfish is specifically a crayfish meant for eating. I know it's complicated and seemingly arbitrary, and yes, there can be cray-cray crawfish. Back to slaw, easily mistaken as the present tense of slew. But no, that would be slay. Slaw is nothing more nor less than coleslaw without the specificity. It's a more general kind of slaw. Even though coal isn't an adjective on its own, however, in culinary nomenclature, slaw and coleslaw are identical slaws. Some may argue that broccoli slaw is another kind of slaw, but no, it is also another kind of coleslaw. And so that loophole is closed. The crawfish and the coleslaw have another thing in common. That thing is a crawfish boil. Both can appear at a crawfish boil, although it's technically only necessary for there to be crawfish at a crawfish boil. But for the vegetarian, it's nice to attend such a boil and find there are some options, along with corn on the cob and potato salad, maybe some beans and cornbread, and some greens and macaroni and cheese, and three bean salad and macaroni salad, and pasta salad and fruit salad, and of course, watermelon, which is a specific type of melon. But in fact, when one hears there will be melon at a boil, one's thoughts immediately turn to cantaloupe or honeydew. And one becomes downcast, because watermelon is far superior to any other melon. So superior that when one is informed that watermelon will be at a boil, specifically a crawfish boil, but more generally any other kind of fish boil, or even any other kind of general boil, be it lobster, lobster, crab, or what have you, One's spirits rise to a vastly higher level than if one is merely told that melon will be served. Melon is disappointing. Watermelon is inspiring. There are water cannons and t-shirt cannons. Water sports and t-shirt sports. Waterworks and t-shirt works, but there are no t-shirt melons. And if there were t-shirt mel, Wait a minute. There are t-shirt melons. And they are definitely in the running with watermelons. And even more competitive are the wet t-shirt melons, which to the uninitiated might be confused, at least linguistically, with watermelons. Both equally problematic, each for different reasons, and each with its own attendant cause for embarrassment, pain, pleasure, mirth, mockery, madness, thirst, satisfaction, malefaction, magnification, mastication, consternation, adulation, and objectionable objectification. There is no way out of the complexity of language once one enters the realm of language. One is soon hopelessly entangled in it, and once thus entangled, the only way free is catastrophe. Personal or social disaster, earthquake, bankruptcy, hurricane, insanity. And so I put to you that the current multifarious state of plague, plague of virus, plague of cruelty, plague of quantification, plague of calculation and miscalculation, plague of the Antichrist, plague of insects, plague of drought, plague of flood, and yes, plague of boils. This time of personal and pandemic plague is the perfect time to disentangle oneself to slip the noose from around one's neck and wander off into the land of meander on the path with nail or alone on the path to beyond or the path to your to set sail for the lakes and the torrible zone and the hills of the chankly boar far and few far and few and round and around in dreams we spin this has been the moment of truth good day <laughs> i really enjoyed that a lot and all that talk of boil makes me want to go make jambalaya
Oh man, can you do that? Do you use Zotarains or you do you try to make your bank up your own? I use the crappy Zotarains sometimes. I it's try- not crappy. People in New Orleans do it all the time. In fact, New Orleans, the the most New Orleans people, totally made fun of me for making my own jambalaya. They were like. Why don't you just use Zotarains? Oh no, I use uh, I don't use the Zotarains uh, jambalaya because I find that way too salty. I use the Zotarains uh, shrimp boil mix to do the shrimp boil, and then I add that shrimp after I've uh-huh. gone through a shrimp boil. I put that into the uh, jambalaya. I know what you're talking about, though. I used to eat that stuff. That's kind of like eating uh, riceroni in San Francisco. You'd think that nobody would, but they actually do. Right? They go crazy for it. They go <laughs> mad for it. They're addicted to salt. I know. That's. Uh, Anything uh, going on? No, we got to get going. Up against the clock. Yeah. All right, talk to you soon. You do. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Alex, do you have the rest of this week's answers to the question from hell, which is, what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Uh, yeah, but first off, if there's any Australian listeners out there uh, listening, mm-hmm. please get in touch with me about cheese slaw. Cheese slaw, really? I'm looking at it, as I usually do on uh, Wikipedia, just looking up weird junk foods from other countries. It's uh, <laughs> coleslaw, but uh, adding cheddar cheese, and sometimes cabbage. So I think cheddar cheese is the star, it sounds so is this your like Austra- a nightmare. Is this your Australian patriotism coming through? No, I was just looking up, uh, <laughs> I was just looking up garbage food. <laughs> What are you opening? What are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Yehoke says, what am I reopening too soon? Drops acid. My mind, man. <laughs> Couple more. Joel Smith says, buy nothing but bats stall in the local live animal market. <laughs> Jeffy D says, my curbside res- rectal osculation booth. <laughs> Marnef says, my butt cheeks. By the way, I hope Chuck is feeling better and I have a bonus joke for you and Alex. Did you know Hitler and Jesus designed a car together? They called it the Chrysler. <laughs> So stupid. <laughs> the Chrysler. And uh, Austin RM says, my sinuses. Hey, did you hear that the uh, Bebo Pollo, the live chicken market around the corner here at Devon and uh, Western, was shut down yesterday? Oh, for? Uh, well, there's issues like raw sewage all over the place. Oh, here's so nothing, <laughs> nothing that serious. <laughs> no, the place just reeks of chickens all the time. That place is disgusting, and it's really kind of... Weird that we finally made the news. Our neighborhood made the news because they're shutting down live animal markets in our neighborhood. My answer to this week's question from hell is, what are you reopening too soon? What are you reopening too soon? Somebody else actually had this answer, but I want to make sure you understand the definition of it. What am I reopening too soon? A can of worms, which by definition is planning to do or talk about something that is much more complicated, unpleasant, or difficult than I realize and that might be better off left alone and never discussed at all. So what am I reopening too soon? The thing, same thing we always reopen too soon on This Is Hell. And that's a can of worms. The answers I liked most were Justin M. saying this bottle. My sense of humor about all this must be in here somewhere. I liked Pete's Pandora's box, despite the fact that he's clearly trying to win votes with the Greek audience. Uh, Rob saying my trauma history, that was good. Kevin saying (laughs) the trepanation (laughs) stitches, which is disturbing. Uh, Gorilla Gramophonics, my eyes each morning. And Andrew saying my third eye. Was there anything that you really, really stuck out with you, Alex? Uh, Yeah, like my trepanation stitches and also... uh... 
hentai corona collection dot zip <laughs> uh, what, what i didn't like is a uh, thrussy <laughs> uh all right, let's go with uh, the trepanation stitches because I just like that so much. That makes this winner, this week's winner, Kevin C. Kevin, you've won 10 This Is Hell subvertising stickers, so you too can subvert outdoor ads with the words This Is Hell. As we're all living in hell right now, what better time to remind everybody that yes, this is hell. Alex, who's on the show next week, starting with Monday's live streaming show at 10 a.m. This is held on for Monday. Check your email, though. I sent you a bunch of Corona suggestions uh, But Tuesday. And I'll look into the Henry thing. Oh, that still yeah, yeah, could yeah. Be Monday, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tuesday. Yes. Uh, Tuesday, uh, Leela Khalili will be on to talk about her book, Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. I'm really looking forward That's, to that one. Yeah. And then also on uh, Wednesday, we will have Alex Blanchett to, on to talk about his book, Porkopolis, awesome. American Animality, Standardized Life in the Factory Farm. Animality, huh? Learn something every day. And Wednesday or Thursday? Still working on that one. That might be Henry. But we will have Jeff Dorchin doing another moment of truth. Thanks to this week's guests, Matt Peterson and Maria Heron, members of Woodbine, an experimental hub in Ridgewood, Queens, New York. Matt is an organizer at Woodbine and is currently helping to coordinate the food pantry there. Maria is a member of Woodbine and has transformed a nearby Brooklyn bookstore into a mutual aid hub and depot as well. You can find out more about Woodbine at their site, woodbine.nyc, and you can follow them on Twitter at woodbineNYC, and you can follow them on Instagram at the same place, but it's woodbine.nyc. Thanks to sociologist Aaron Hatton, who's been making me think all week about... Americans and their relationship with work and the way that we identify ourselves through our jobs. She's the author of Coerced Work Under Threat of Punishment. Erin is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Buffalo. You can find out more about Erin by following her on Twitter at E.E. Hatton, and you can find out more about her at our website as well. AaronHatton.com. Finally, thanks to today's guest, journalist and political analyst, Lucas Kerner from VenezuelaAnalysis.com. This week's Hangover of Cure is a combination of plant extracts, roots, and minerals that were cited in a study in a study from Mines, Germany. That makes this week's Hangover of Cure a combination of plant extracts, roots, and minerals. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon. We'll get you caught up on what's happening with the global pandemic in small-town America up north of the lake. And there's a reason to have hope for those living out in the sticks, and there's reason to not have so much hope. We'll also be sharing an interview we did back in 2005 about the increasingly fragile food supply chain. And we'll be talking with, uh, we'll be playing our interview with Carissa Lenfert of Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement, who are fighting pollution by the large CAFO feeding lots. I hope to see all of you sometime in the very near future at This Is Hell office hours that we will have again on Friday nights when this nightmare is over, which I'm predicting will be done around Labor Day 2021. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz, producing Alex Jerry. As always, we could not do the show without Alex, without Jeff Dorch, and without Ronaldo Magaldi, and without Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this morning's show, and that's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller.
Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.